Uh, tomorrow marks the 71st anniversary of the release of a very famous Disney animated movie. Can anyone gel, guess what movie that is? So 71 years ago tomorrow marks the release of a very famous Disney who, who wants to guess? Snow White? Nope. Not Cinderella? Nope, not Fantasia. That's a good guess, though. Nope, not that one. <laughs> Steamboat Willie? Nope. Nope, not Pinocchio? Nope, good guess, though. Come on, people. <laughs> Who's that? What? Not Dumbo? Peter Pan. Give it up to Greg in the sound booth. It took you long enough, but yes, Peter Pan. Can you believe that was 71 years ago it first came out? Now, those of you familiar with uh, the movie or, and I don't know if we are very familiar with the movie, but those of you who are familiar with the movie or the book for that matter, you know that Peter Pan likes a lot of things, doesn't he? He likes adventure. He likes it when Wendy reads him in the Lost Boys bedtime stories, Right? But, but there's one thing in particular that Peter Pan refuses to do. There's something he will never do. And tell me, what is that? Grow up. Very good. He refuses to grow up. In fact, do you know that the original title for the story of Peter Pan was called, quote, The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up? As Peter and the Lost Boys proudly sing in the movie, and I'm not going to sing it, I'm going to say it, but they sing, growing up is awfuler than all the awful things that ever were. I'll never grow up, never grow up, never grow up, no, sir. He refuses to grow up. But, but you know what? In many ways, uh, Peter Pan is not alone. You see, the sad reality is there are many Christians who have embraced a type of Peter Pan Christianity. That is, they, they don't want to grow up. I could say it this way, they refuse to give any kind of effort towards Christian maturity. And while refusing to grow up might be tolerable in a children's fairy tale, Friend, please hear me. Such a sentiment is actually very dangerous in the life of a Christian. And this is the exact problem the author of Hebrews addresses in our text this morning. Today we are once again going to be studying Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through chapter 6, verse 3. And you'll recall from our study of last week how the author had to take a break from his discussion, from his teaching us about the priesthood of Christ. And do you happen to remember why he needed to take this break? It was because he discerned there was something wrong in the hearts and in the lives of the original readers. There was a disease. And what was this disease that he discerned in the original readers that made him want to stop teaching them about the priesthood of Christ? 
well, we could call it Peter Pan Christianity. That is, they were spiritually immature. And due to their spiritual immaturity, they could not receive, they could not digest the meat of God's Word that the author wanted them to have. So in our text this morning, the author breaks from his discussion on the priesthood of Christ in order to command and exhort the original readers and us today to move towards Christian maturity. To move towards Christian maturity. This, as we talked about last week, is the main idea of this section of Scripture. As we referenced last week, the imperative there in chapter 6, verse 1, is the main point of this section. And And let's just allow this to sink in for a moment. Christian, please hear me. You are called by God to strive, to give effort towards Christian maturity. You are called by God to grow up in your faith. To put it another way, there should be no Peter Pan Christianity in the church. No, that instead there should be a joyful pursuit of knowing God and growing in our faith and application of His Word. And, and why is this? Well, why does the, the author of Hebrews have such a burden that we would leave spiritual infancy behind? Why, well, as we've learned the last couple of weeks, and as the, the book makes abundantly clear, to remain a spiritual infant is dangerous, very dangerous. You know, we're going we're gonna to read the text here in a moment. But our text this morning, Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 3, it could be really easily misunderstood. And you know what? Often it is. Often it is. Yet please hear me. The author, as we're going to see, he does not believe that there's this um, permanent state of spiritual infancy that a believer can occupy. No, the entire purpose of the book of Hebrews is to warn believers about the danger of falling away. And as we're going to see in the weeks to come, it's urgent, he argues, for Christians to leave behind spiritual infancy. So here now is the million-dollar question. Okay, there's to be no Peter Pans among us, right? We're to want to grow up. We're to to move towards maturity. Here's the million-dollar question. Okay, so what does that look like? What is it? What is the maturity? What's the mark that we're trying to strive towards to hit? Well, thankfully, we do not have to guess. As we look carefully at the author's argument in this passage, he tells us. And in our text this morning, the author directs our attention to four defining marks of Christian maturity. And last week, we examined the first two. You'll recall that first, Christian maturity is heart-oriented. First and foremost, Christian maturity is a matter of the heart. You'll recall that in verse 11 of chapter 5, the author accuses the, author accuses the original readers of what? Do you remember? What type of hearing did they have? Dull hearing. He's like, there's much I want to tell you, but I can't because you are dull of hearing. And as the immediate context makes clear, dull hearing, it doesn't mean they have problems with their physical ears. 
No, it means there's something wrong with their heart. As Hebrews 6.12 explains, the opposite of dullness of hearing is diligence. It's an earnestness to apply God's word, right? Your heart hears God's word, and as it lands upon your heart, there's an earnestness to, yes, I need to obey. I need to apply. I need to give effort here. And as we've talked about before, in the Bible, the, the heart just isn't the seat of the emotions. No, in Scripture, the heart refers to the mind, will, and emotions, right? It's, it's, the, it's the core of who you are. And, and before we move on, I just want to invite you to consider once more what the author of Hebrews exhorted us to do in chapter 3. In that chapter, the preacher, the, the author, he went out of his way to remind you and to remind me that we are responsible for the condition of our hearts. Remember this? Many, many times, three or four times in that chapter, he said, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Beware, do not harden your heart as Israel did in the day of rebellion. We as God's people, God says, you, Christian, are responsible for the condition of your heart. And the question I want us just to, as we begin to, to work our way into this text, is to ask us is, do we take that responsibility seriously? Because Christianity, first and foremost, is heart-oriented. But then second, we learned, it's measured by righteousness. Right? Christian maturity is not measured by intellectual ability. That's not the standard. No, being skilled in righteousness is. I mean, listen, you don't measure cooking oil with a tape measure, do you? No. That's not the standard by which you measure cooking oil. Use a cooking cup, right? That's what we used to measure. Measuring cup, yes. I've heard it both ways. Cooking cup, measuring cup, yes. Okay. <laughs> right? Well, likewise, you, we measure maturity by righteousness. I mean, as, as the verbs in chapter 5, verses 13 through 14 prove, the mature people are those who are skilled in righteousness as opposed to unskilled, as well as those who have been trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There's, a, there's an outworking, there's an action of righteousness. And listen, should this surprise us? Should righteousness surprise us as being the standard for maturity? Of course not. Especially if we're reading our Bibles carefully. As those who have been saved by God and have the Spirit of God at work within us, what fruit ought to be produced in the life of the believer? What does Paul teach us in Galatians 5, right? So, put it this way. Christian, if you want to measure your maturity, ask yourself, am I increasing in the fruit of the Spirit, God's Spirit in me? Is my life marked by love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, 
goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. The mature Christian is one skilled in living a righteous life. But that's not all. There are two more important marks of Christian maturity the author wants us to know, and that's what I want us to give our attention to this morning. So if you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. That's page 103 in the, the white Bibles that we offer out there in the lobby. I invite you to follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I read this text. I'm going to start back up in verse 11. So, um, in chapter 4, end of chapter 4, and then beginning in chapter 5, uh, the author has been talking about, uh, about the great high priest we have in Jesus. And it's such a, an incredibly comforting text, those verses. But he, he stops, he talks about how Christ is in the order of Melchizedek, but then he stops to say this in verse 11. He says, about this, referring how Christ is in the order of Melchizedek, he says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. And why is it hard to explain? Since you have become dull of hearing. Right? They, they hear, but it lands on hard hearts. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. So what are the mature? For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In verse 1 of chapter 6, and this is where we're going to spend our time this morning, these next several verses. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. So, so what's the, the elementary doctrine of Christ? Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. In verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. How many of you are familiar with hydrogen water? Anybody familiar with hydrogenated water? Well, you're about to learn about it here in the next couple minutes. I recently bought a hydrogenated water bottle. In 2020, a group of scientists published a peer-reviewed study on the health benefits of drinking and consuming hydrogenated water. And they gave the hydrogenated water, they gave hydrogenated water to two different groups of people for seven straight days. And at the end of the week, the scientists were surprised at the disparity between the two groups. One group showed minimal improvement in their health. But the other group, on the other hand, showed significant health improvement in many areas, especially when it came to cardiovascular health. Now, keep in mind, both groups were given 
the same type of water. Yet only one group really improved. And you know what the difference was between the two groups? The one that improved, the one that saw the growth, the one that saw the health benefits, that group exercised. At the end of the study, the science, scientists concluded that the lack of improvement in the one group had nothing to do with the hydrogenated water. That wasn't the problem. No, the problem was with the participants. They didn't do anything with the water. They didn't exercise. Well, notice, I want to suggest that the author of Hebrews is making a very similar argument. Tell me, what two types of food does the author compare and contrast? What are they? Milk and what? Milk and meat, right? And what is milk? What's the milk in reference to in this text? Well, based on the context, the milk would be the items mentioned there in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 6. Meat, and this is what he wants to give them. This is what he wants to give us. Meat, in the context, would be teaching about Christ's priesthood, specifically how Christ's priesthood is in the order of Melchizedek. And notice, as verse 13 states of chapter 5, those whose diet is milk remained unskilled in the word of righteousness. Why is that? Is the problem with the milk? Is the problem with their diet? No. Please hear me. There's nothing wrong or deficient with the milk of God's word. No, like those participants in the scientific study, the reason why these Christians remain spiritually immature is because they weren't exercising their spiritual senses. Tom Schreiner, again, is really helpful here. Speaking of the spiritually immature, he writes this. He says, the author doesn't mean that they have never been taught what it means to live righteously, as if they were ignorant of God's standards. The point is, they haven't put into practice what they were taught. Problems not with the milk of God's word. No, they weren't putting the milk of God's word by exercising their spiritual muscles. Because you know what milk is all about? As I think the context makes clear, especially in chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, it's all about Christ. And here we learn the third mark of Christian maturity, and that is Christian maturity is built on Christ. It's first heart-oriented, it's measured by righteousness, but notice here it's built on Christ. Look again what the author writes there in verses 1 through 2. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. This is referring to the milk, I want to suggest, and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Have I, have I ever mentioned to you that I built an outdoor ice rink this winter? That, oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Of course I have. I love talking about it. In fact, it's not just enough to talk about it. Here's a, here's a picture of it. 
uh, notice the Chicago Blackhawks logo at center ice. That's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Now, this, this might surprise you, but it actually takes a lot of work and time to, to lay a solid foundation of ice to skate on. I actually built this with the help of my sons. So my, my family, all six of us, we could improve our ice skating. That, that was the purpose of it. So tell me, how silly would it be if after we build this rink, we never stood on the ice to actually skate? Not only that, how ridiculous would it be if we thought the way for us to grow in our ability to skate was to simply keep adding water to refreeze on the ice, laying more and more layers of ice? That'd be ridiculous. No, you know what we need to do in order to improve our skating? We need to get on the foundation of the ice and skate. Faith, when the author calls us to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, there in verse 1, he does not mean we are to abandon the fundamental teachings about Christ. So what does he mean then? When he says we're to leave it, well, let's keep reading. The context helps us understand what is intended. Because tell me, how does the author describe the elementary doctrines of Christ? Look at there in verse 1. He describes them as a foundation that is what? Laid. So notice, these are not teachings that are to be abandoned. No, as a foundation, these are teachings that we ought to build our Christian life upon. So then, what's the author's point then? What, what do the readers and us need to do with this foundation? Well, John Piper captured the intent of these verses well. He writes this. He says, they need to learn how to take the milk the basic truths of the gospel, which I'm going to argue are, is the content of verses 1 through 2, and practice how to grow with them. The need is not to rebuild foundational facts, but to stand on them and live by them. To use the ice rink analogy, they, know, they don't need to keep adding water to the foundation of the ice and stare at it. No, they need to get on the ice and start skating. They need to stand upon the solid foundation of the doctrine of Christ and start living in light of them. And what are these foundational facts about Christ? Well, as several commentators have pointed out, notice there are six items and they're grouped in three pairs. Now, to be sure, there is some ambiguity as to what the precise what as ambiguity as to precisely what the author means with these three pairs. But what we do know for certain is that they have Jesus Christ as the subject because notice what he says there in verse 1, let us therefore leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation. Now from my studies, I understand each pair to refer to the various stages of the Christian life. 
Okay, so there's, there's three pairs. The first pair talks about conversion. The second pair talks about the, the Christian life, especially in regards to baptism. And then the last pair talks about the end, the resurrection from the dead. So notice, the first pair is repentance from dead works and a faith towards God. This refers to the inception of the Christian life. Pop quiz, how does a person become a Christian? What is needed and required for a person to become a Christian? We get the answer here. They become a, become a Christian by repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ. Faith, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Right? When one becomes a Christian, when one becomes a believer, they turn away from their works of sin, which leads to death. That's what he means when he talks about works of death. I turn from my deeds of sin, which lead to death, and I instead turn and trust in God. And man, we see this taught all throughout the New Testament, do we not? Just consider what we see in the book of Acts. The evangelistic preaching in the book of Acts calls on believers to repent and believe. Repent and believe. And I think it's very appropriate, before we go on any further, have you done that? Have you repented of the, of the actions of sins that lead to death and damnation, friend? Have you turned from that and instead turned completely, giving your whole self to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, I would plead with you, let today be the day of salvation for you. As Steve articulated a few moments ago of what Christ has done, friend, turn from trusting in your own righteousness and instead own the fact that you're a sinner deserving of damnation and trust the work of Christ to sufficiently save you. The second pair of instruction I want you to notice is about washings and the laying on of hands. The instructions about washings most likely refers to baptism. Now, the laying on of hands could refer to several, several things. It could refer to being blessed, receiving a blessing or healing, being commissioned. Think of last week when we had Alex and Sarah up here and we honored him for completing his license. We, the elders, we laid hands on him to commission him for pastoral work. The laying on of hands, it could also be referred to receiving the Holy Spirit or spiritual gifts. I'm inclined to understand the term to refer to commissioning people for service, but whatever the case, every option that there is has to do with aiding the believer in living a faithful Christian life. Then notice the third pair has to do with the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Jesus himself in John 5 clearly taught that every person, consider this, every person who has ever lived will be raised from the dead. Every person will be raised from the dead and then assigned an eternal destination of one or two places, either blessed joy with their triune God in heaven or eternal condemnation in hell. 
And notice that phrase there, eternal judgment. You know what that signifies? It means that the judgment is definitive. There are no second chances. Faith, Christian maturity is built off the doctrine of Christ. These are foundational truths for the Christian life. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we just looking at the ice or are we skating on the ice? That is, are we giving consideration as to how these truths ought to help us grow in righteousness or are we just passive? For example, the truth, the incredible truth that one day you'll be raised from the dead to spend all eternity with your triune God in a glorified body on a new heavens and a new earth, freed from pain, freed from sin. Friend, does that truth impact your present response to your current suffering? It should. For what does Paul teach in 2 Corinthians 4? Speaking of our current suffering, he writes that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for something, for an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. So what should we do? He says we should not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. He's saying, look, this foundational, this elementary doctrine of Christ, that you'll be raised to new life, to spend eternity with God in heaven, that should impact your righteous living now in the midst of suffering. Namely, knowing that what awaits you, knowing this in eternal hope that we have, it should make you skilled in righteousness so that you do not sin in your suffering, but instead obey and please your heavenly Father. Just like Jesus. Or consider the significance of baptism. Christian, the elementary doctrine of, of Christ in regards to baptism, that should make you a Jedi master when it comes to living in righteousness. I mean, what does, what does Paul teach in Romans 6 about baptism. He says in the act of baptism, he says your old sinful nature has been put to death. Indeed, he says you are now to consider yourself dead to what? Dead to sin. He says because of this elementary teaching of, of Christ. This is the ice. Skating on it is applying it. He says consider yourself dead to sin. The next time you're tempted to click on something you shouldn't click on on your phone, remember this. Christian, you're dead to sin. The next time you're tempted to give way to be sinfully angry at your spouse, remember, you're dead to sin. You don't have to sin. You're alive to Christ. Or the next time you're tempted to disobey God's command, to share the gospel with others, and you know you ought to in that moment. Next time you're tempted to give way to the fear of man, remember, I'm dead to sin. It no longer is mastery over me. So do you see? The, these truths are to make you righteous, Christian. And this is just scratching the surface as we consider the truth of e eternal life with Jesus and our baptism. These truths are meant to make you skilled in righteousness. And did you know what you are doing 
when you use these truths about Jesus to enable you to please Jesus and not live for yourself, you're getting on the ice. You're building your life on the foundation of Christ. This is what it means to take the milk of God's word and to exercise our spiritual senses so that we might be skilled in righteousness. Christian maturity is built on Christ. And here's what I invite you to do. Ask your community group if they see you skating or just adding water to the ice. Ask them if they see you growing in righteousness or being passive. And friend, if they correct you, receive it. Indeed, thank them. And then by God's grace, apply yourself to moving towards Christian maturity. So, Christian maturity is heart-oriented. It's measured by righteousness. It's built on Christ. And then lastly, and of no less importance, it's dependent on God's intervention. Because notice what he says there in verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. Faith, what we read here in this one verse is a truth that is writ large from Genesis to Revelation. And that is human beings are responsible for their actions and God is sovereign over all that occurs. And these two themes do not contradict each other, but they're complementary. Notice the author of Hebrews makes it clear that all Christians are responsible for their spiritual maturity. This is what he's been hammering home, right? Yet at the same time, spiritual maturity is given by God and is a result of his gracious work in the life, lives of his people. And for that, we ought to give him praise. Amen? Indeed, this verse ought to make us get down on our knees and pray daily for God's will to be done in our lives and in the lives of others. Because ultimately, any maturity that's in us, he gets the glory. Faith May God permit us to never be a Peter Pan type of a church. Rather, may he do what he has promised and that is complete the good work he started in us for his glory and our good. Amen? Let's pray.